Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, hello, good people. My name's Andonis Peperoglu. Um, I'm a migration historian based at the University of Melbourne. And as someone whose mother was born in British Cyprus, I'd like to pay my respects to the Gadigal peoples of the order of the order nation, to the elders past, present, and emerging. And as someone who's grown up with a healthy distrust of exclusivist, racialist, colonial regimes, regimes that I see tied this inheritance to First Nations calls for self-determination, I'd also like to acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded on these beautiful lands we're honoured to be living and working on, on this stunning country that kind of undulates between the sea and the mountains to our west. It's an honour to be chairing tonight's panel, The Ark of Australian Racism, and what a week to be exploring this notion of an arc of an Australian style of racism here at Sydney Writers' Festival hosted here at Carriage Works, only a few blocks away from where First Nation activisms have grew, responded and resisted. In recent weeks, we've seen Stan Grant, a proud Wiradjuri man, his public uh, resignation as hosts of ABC's Q&A due to the abhorrent attacks he received surrounding the coronation. We've also seen Miranda Modi visit us this week, um, pack out a stadium in what I can only describe as a form of diasporic nationalism. We've also seen, sadly, Dutton, known for his crafty use of racialized speech, reinforce his opposition to The Voice, asserting that its passing will re-racialize our constitution, the audacity. Of course, this is just over recent weeks, and we do not need to dig much into our recent past, let alone our, decent, our, our, our more distant past, to locate various forms of Australian racism. Thinking about the notion of an arc as something that implies kind of curvature, an overarching trajectory, if you will, that encompasses a wide terrain we're well placed today to revisit Australia's racisms, and I put emphasis here on the plural with our esteemed panel of critical thinkers and writers. I'm honoured to share the stage tonight with my federal panellists, who, via their own anti-racist practice and politics, have laboured for many years on how to locate, label and respond to racism when they see it. In doing so, they've generated fresh dialogues and expanded our sense of how to grapple with the messiness and, reinventive and inventiveness of Australia's racisms, its many stings, its many traumas, its many structures. We have the pleasure to hear from Amy Thunik, a Gamilaroi, Gamilaroi and Kamilaroi Yinar and mother who resides in a Wabakol country. Amy is an academic, in the field of education is also the author of a stunning memoir, Tell Me Again. Amy is direct, the uh, director at Story Factory in Redfern and contributes to many committees and councils and is also a regular media commentator. We're also joined to the end here by Osman Faruqi, culture editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Osman's an award-winning journalist has previously worked as editor at the ABC and with SWATS Media. Randa Abdul Fattah is also with us. She's Palestinian Egyptian Muslim writer, academic, activist, former lawyer, a multi-award winning author of 14 books published in almost 20 countries. 20 countries. Her most recent books include Coming of Age in the War on Terror, and her first picture book, 11 Words for Love, illustrated by Maxine Beniba Clark, is, is also recent, and Randa is a future fellow at Macquarie University. Finally, we're joined by 
Professor Ghassan Hajj, Australia's leading scholar in Australian racism. Australia, uh, Ghassan is an anthropologist, a social theorist at Melbourne University, and is currently a senior research fellow at the Max Planck Institute of Social Anthropology in Germany. He's internationally renowned for his research on migration, the intersection of racism, nationalism, and colonialism, and for his development of critical anthropological theory. Along with the works republished in the racial politics of Australian multiculturalism, which is on sale in the bookshop and will be officially launched after this session, and I'll give some details to that towards the end. Rassan is also the sole author of Altier Politics, Critical Anthropology and the Radical Imagination. Racism is, is racism an environmental threat, as well as another recent work which I found quite influential to my own thinking, The Diasporic Condition, Ethnographic Explorations of the Lebanese in the World. Delight, I'd like to commence with a question to each of our panellists on how they position themselves in relation to Australian racism. I'd like them to consider by their own historical and cultural experiences how they situate themselves in relation to a specific kind of Australian racism. I'll then ask Amy, Osman, Randa and Ghassan specific questions related to their writings, research and questions. So I'd like to start with you, Amy. As a First Nations person, how do you position yourself in regards to the operations of Australian racism? That is a great question, but what a fantastic panel to engage with such a question, right? Um, so yeah, I'll begin by acknowledging that I'm on the lands of the Gadigal people as well and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, I think what's really interesting about being First Nations is when, when it comes to racism, people often think, about just whiteness, right? Like, it's who are you in relation to whiteness? How do you engage with people who are white? But as an Indigenous person who's light-skinned as well, um, for me, racism also comes from settlers of colour, so people of colour who are settlers. Um, and so one of the things when you're engaging in public events, when you're at public events, um, when you're out and about, and I'm sure my panellists are familiar with this sensation, but you've always got to have your guard up a little bit. And sometimes you get used to being around people who know and understand the world from your lens. You get a little too comfortable with it. And then you will be at, at you know, the, the after-party drinks or whatever, and you think you're in a fairly safe environment. And then you cop really vitriolic racism from, from a person of colour who wants to tell you what your identity is, who wants to tell you that, but you're not Indigenous because you, you, you're clearly something else because you don't align with what Indigenous looks like to me. And then you have to choose between, you know, how much energy do you give the person? Do you put your teacher hat on and explain that actually you've fallen into the trap of conditioning of thinking that Indigenous people have to look how they do in the ads for the Northern Territory? Or that we don't exist anymore at all. You don't know that Gamilaroi people of my clan are all really tall, I'm over six foot. Um, we have green eyes. Um, my hair is a lie. <laughs> um, I actually do look Gamilaroi. Um, you mentioned Uncle Stan Grant earlier and he also has Gamilaroi on his family and when we first met, he recognised me as Gamilaroi without knowing who I was because I do look Gamilaroi. And how we look shouldn't impact in these conversations, but you find yourself getting... It literally happened last night, which is kind of why I'm using it as an example, but, you know, I'm three drinks in decompressing after a writer's event, and I find myself having to argue with a person of colour that we don't use eugenics and slave language, and if I'm born to an Aboriginal mother and raised on Aboriginal land, how am I not Aboriginal? Um, and I think that complexity um, involves trying to work out, because racism is relational, right? Like, racism doesn't exist without people, and you only experience it when you engage with other people. And so it's always dependent on, what does that person know about the history of these lands? 
What does this person actually know about indigeneity? What does this person know about transgenerational trauma or history? And also from a position of love, particularly when you're engaging with someone who is a settler of colour, is how much is this person engaged in the battle specific to their community in trying to find acceptance and how much propaganda have they been hit with? Because you'll find like the most, um, the most Australia Day propaganda that I see anywhere is out in Western Sydney when I'm out visiting. Um, I have a lot of Lebanese family. And so when I'm in Lakemba, from Lakemba out to Liverpool, the bombardment of Australia Day, this is what it means to be Australian. And, and so am I dealing with someone who actually believes these things or am I dealing with someone who wants to find a sense of belonging and is falling into the model immigrant pressure um, and how much education and energy do I have in that moment? Um, so I think that's kind of my relationship with it. Thank you. And to you, Osman? Um, really generous and smart answer from Amy that is very hard to follow. Um, um, thanks for coming out tonight, everyone. It's a nice Saturday evening to spend thinking about pretty grim stuff in a way. The question about how, yeah, how I place myself, it's really interesting and quite humbling to be on this panel to think about it because uh, Gassan's work, White Nation, helped me understand stuff that I'd been experiencing and feeling but didn't really have words to articulate. And similarly, Rhonda's book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, summed up my experiences in this country and my sort of uh, moments of, of feeling awake and activated on the issue of race uh, in a way, in, in many ways, better than I ever could. I, for me, like 9-11 sticks out in my mind as this point where I felt I was defined by people around me as someone different. Um, I'm sure there were experiences prior to that. Um, but, you know, it doesn't help that my name is way too similar to Osama, I've got to say. Um, thanks, Mum and Dad. Good on you. Um, no, they're here. They're great. Um, it's a good name. But what that experience and most taught me was that race is something that is externally in this country placed upon us. Uh, and one of the things that people who feel very uncomfortable in Australia discussing race say is why do you make everything about race? Why do you, a black person or a, or a brown person or, or any kind of person from a non-Anglo, non-white background, why are you always making these things about race? What has always been evident to me and, and even more so now is we don't do that. That is forced onto us by uh, the, the majority of the mainstream, the, the structures that created this country uh, and, and, and perpetuate that kind of racist structure for the benefit of, of the white majority. Um, and that is something that once you realise that is both somewhat liberating because you no longer feel like guilty or bad for thinking about things through that perspective, but it's also quite exhausting and stressful because then you also realise that you're kind of trapped in a system where everything you do, whether that's the work that you do, the school that you go to, the house that you try to rent, the people you try to have relationships with, the, the, the bars that you try to enter, the, the writing events that you speak at where you get mistaken for the all of these things are impacted by your perception as a racist other. Um, and to me, that's like when I think about race broadly, to answer your question, is what that means in, in an Australian context is being trapped by your background, by the colour of your skin and what you represent mm. to the white majority. Um, and untangling that, finding the way to break free of that is the goal on both, for me at least, an individual level, but I think more importantly on a structural level so no one really has to go through these processes mm. again in the future. We might get to that towards the end, but Randa, how about yourself? How do you situate yourself within... In your work as a mother, as a teacher, researcher? Well, as I was, um, when I was growing up, for me, it was a pre-9-11 world, but I was very conscious of the fact that I was still um, an Arab Muslim. Um, and I was sort of socialised in an environment where I had to correct and rehabilitate the image of Muslims and Arabs that was being perpetuated in the media. And so my anti-racism at that time was very much about speaking back to racism, um, you know, representation, about trying to prove that we were not terrorists, not oppressed. 
Uh, and that was very much also a symptom of having a community that was still emerging in its understanding of what it meant to to engage in politics, to to sort of um, assert ourselves and. You know, at the time of 9/11, that was very much a feeling. It was a sense of an emergency. The panic button was on. We need to let the the world know we're not terrorists, so that they don't, you know, um, graffiti our schools or rip off the hijabs off our sisters' and mothers' heads. And so that was sort of the response then. Um, my learning and had really shifted. And Hassan Hajj's work was huge, huge influence in my racial literacy. Um, and it, it really gave me a sense of the, the, the need to divest from liberal multicultural models um, and to really start to understand what it means to not be the problem, not to look at yourself as the problem that needs fixing, but to actually think, why does Australia have a problem mm. with minorities? Uh, but having said that, my for me now, my understanding of what anti-racism work means is very much informed by two things, by my faith as a Muslim, which means that for me, fighting for justice isn't just something that, you know, I do on Twitter or, you know, on the weekend. It is absolutely fundamental to the way I orient my life. And that means in the way I speak to my children, my family, from there outwards, taking every moment to think about, you know, trying to... to, to to have a moral code and ethical code that's based on justice. And two, being a Palestinian means that I don't see racism in this country as something that's about just microaggressions or about tolerance. I see it as part of a wider structure, as a, a part of a global structure. Um, and what informs me as a Palestinian especially is knowing that I am here as a settler on stolen land. And that that orients all my anti-racism work, especially, Amy, as you mentioned, amongst Muslim communities and the schools that I go and visit and the students that I work with, having them understand their responsibilities here because sometimes you hear them perpetuating the same sorts of racism that they have experienced and it's really important that they understand their responsibilities here because the further and further you get away from the, the first migrants that came here, the, the second and third generation, the less fight there is sometimes. And you need to remind them that the fight isn't over because you have a responsibility every day. You are on stolen land. And so for me, that's where I really try and pour my energy into. Thank you. And Gassan, yourself, just quickly, and then we'll move on to some questions about your, all your individual writing. You, yourself as a scholar, as an academic. Well, I mean, there's so many angles from which one can, can approach this issue, but uh, just highlight something which is quite central to me now, uh, which is the dialectic between uh, when you are writing, you have an obligation to create a community of anti-racists. And uh, you are also addressing racists. And sometimes you feel, you know, when you're writing to inform racists, you're doing them a favor. Uh, you must feel that you are doing them a favor. Uh, and if they don't want to take your precious gift, well, tough luck for them. You know, uh, it's sort of like, I'm not going to run after people to make them better people, sort of like. So I think it's very important to have a sense that we are on, we are producing uh, ethically important goods mm -hmm. that we are disseminating. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but at the same time, we know that these goods are not necessarily always appreciated or consumed, uh, and uh, that we get battered uh, continuously. And therefore, we also have a duty uh, to build ourselves as a community, mm -hmm. all anti-racist people. And yeah. I think uh, if one sort of like just uh, thinks of anti-racism in terms of how much it has changed Australia, etc. One can be disappointed, uh, sure. I mean, when I look over uh, many years of my writing, I think, wow, I wrote this 
30 years ago, and I still feel the need to write it now. This is so disappointing. But at the same time, I feel the crucial thing is also the fact that in writing it, I'm part of a community. And uh, so the ethic of anti-racist writing is also to create a better community within and among ourselves. Mm. And better community means being critical towards ourselves, not just glorifying mm. ourselves. Yeah, this ability is to talk. Is that brief enough? For it, it, it is. <laughs> I, I promise I'll give you more time in just a moment. But, you know, this, this ability to think about the different audiences that anti-racism, activism, writing, politics needs to address. And as you rightly noted, it is also a type of politics that's reflected back on ourselves, which turns me back to Amy. And in your memoir, you do this really amazing, crafty, in the best sense of a crafty, crafty skill of weaving together the past and the present in time and, and, and kind of an orientation towards the future. And so I want to ask you, this playing with time, how you see that as a mode of anti-racist writing? Um, yeah, it's funny. I get, I, thank you. I do get a lot of compliments on the time thing with the book. Um, I feel almost disingenuous taking that kind of credit though, because that's just genuinely how I see things. Um, it's how I've been raised to understand time. And, uh, I think it comes down to relationality. So whenever I'm hearing other people's stories, I'm thinking about the way that doesn't just connect to me, but to my community. Like what you were saying about how we have this responsibility to also build our own communities and to hold space for joy and for love. And um, I was really enjoying hearing from each of you. So my my grandfather, who's my Aboriginal grandfather, his sisters, the Aboriginal women, they met this many, many years ago now, they met and fell in love with Lebanese brothers. And so they moved to Lebanon. And so my Aboriginal aunties, grand aunts, have their children and their children are Aboriginal Lebanese that grew away uh, off country. And then those children came here to have their children and their children then had to do the work of reconnecting because they had been born and raised by people who had been separated from country for a generation. And even though we weren't connected to them, it was really interesting, though, that then my older sister met and fell in love with a Muslim Lebanese man, and, and she herself is also Muslim. And the way the storying all ties together of, you know, strong Aboriginal women in my family falling in love with Lebanese men, and then, you know, so now my, ne my nephews and my brand-new niece are Lebanese and Aboriginal, and um, I think our storying nourishes us and it protects us and it builds our community and it allows us to connect with people. But in terms of anti-racist work, I think it's also, it, it, it helps sustain us. So that idea of time, of recognising that the work that we're doing is for our ancestors and for our descendants, it's for our neighbours as well as for ourselves, and for identities that are always having to fight like, and it's not necessarily because we want to. It's like what Rhonda was saying about then having it put on her to to be the model Muslim, that we're not all terrorists, you know. And, and I remember that era because my older sister was only like 20 when she started wearing hijab and our car got vandalised and it was so violent. Um, but it puts pressure on you, whether it's because of, religious beliefs or because of the colour of your skin or because of your ethnic identity. Um, and it's really important that we remember that rest is a right, not a privilege. And we also have the right to magic. And when it comes to raising our children and feeding ourselves and loving our partners, we, we have the right to thrive, not just survive. And I think viewing time the way I do if I just focused on the day ahead of me, on some days I would want to give up because on some days I'm just so filled with fear for my nephews who have names like Mohammed and Ahmed and Zaid and Amor and they are brown and the eldest is fast hitting puberty and I'm, I'm so worried, like at what age does my beautiful, soft nephew begin to be seen as a threat? 
You know, my Muslim, brown, Aboriginal, Lebanese nephew who has a heart of gold is, is nearing that age where he's a threat. And if I just focused on a day at a time, that would crush me. You know, it would crush me for my own children. But seeing time as something that wraps and weaves and moves around, I remember that my ancestors have lived through worse and that step by step and day by day we build and we nourish our communities and we hope for better and we wait for those days while fighting for them. Thank you. Uh, Osman, uh, I've read a pretty beautiful essay of yours called A Tale of Two Colonies in an edited collection uh, edited by Winnie Dunn from Sweatshop. Um, there you kind of explore your own and your family's migration journey. I'd just like to, for you to kind of share the reflection of, in, of that essay of how, how you kind of experience two forms of colonialism and perhaps by extension different forms of racism. Yeah, I'll do that. I also want to talk about the time thing because what Amy was saying was so interesting and I feel like it goes to the, the, the theme of the talk, this, this idea of an arc, right, which, which suggests a, a journey moving in, in some sort of direction. That, and I think it relates. So that, that essay was, was looking at the, the colonisation of, of South Asia, India, Pakistan, where my family's from, and how intrinsically linked it was to the colonisation, subjugation and genocide that took place in, in this country. Um, but what that also, the kind of research I did for that piece and the stories that I've been looking at and thinking about for writing and work that I've been doing for a long time on this, is it painted a very different picture of Australia uh, 100, 200, 250 years ago to what uh, we kind of think of. And I think there's a narrative around race in Australia that is the mainstream narrative that we get taught that is very... Uh, I think, misleading and ahistorical. And it came up in a conversation I was having at, at um, lunch today. We were talking about why, in some ways, race and, and issues around race in Australia feel, at the very least, like they haven't gotten better and, in some cases, feel like they've gotten worse. And when I was growing up, there was this line that people would say to me, and they would be like, you know, the thing about racism in Australia is everyone has their turn to be treated badly, right? It's like... First it was Aboriginal people, then it was Irish people, and then it was Greeks, and then it was Chinese. Now it's your Muslims' turn, right? And that was like, that was like a really common thing people said when I was growing so up. So sick of that. Important. Yeah, and, and I think one good thing that's happened is it doesn't get said as much, but it doesn't take, it should have taken people half a second to realise how stupid that was. Because it wasn't like, first Aboriginal people had their turn. Oh, we fixed it all, right? Like, obviously not. And... Um, secondly, Irish people, you're doing fine. No offence, but you're fine. You're always... Um, and, and what, but what it suggests is, like, this, this story of migration and, diver like, cultural diversity in Australia being this linear thing that started in 1901 and then moved forward. Australia was, in some parts of Australia, more culturally diverse than it is now. We had people from all sorts of different backgrounds and communities living you know, whether it's in remote and regional Australia, whether it's in the cities, most places in Australia are called Chinaman's Beach are called Chinaman's Beach because Chinese settlers lived there before they were forcibly expelled by the white Australia policies, right? So it's an ahistorical understanding of the, the way that race worked and patterns of migration. Um, but the reason why I was thinking about that is because if you don't understand that things in some ways we're different to how you've been taught and you think we're on this journey where everything slowly gets better year on year, I think you fall into another trap where you think that things move linearly, everyone has their bad time, but we get over it and things inch forward a little bit. I think it's never been more clear than in the last few years how much of a fallacy that argument is mm. because there are so many examples of justice movements or campaigns for equality slipping backwards. Mm. Uh, in the United States, discussions around, like abortion is illegal again, mm. right? That was not something I think people thought would have happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. The debate around uh, gender, uh, sexual diversity and trans rights is backwards from where it was in, in the United States, but also I think in Australia. And I think on race, Pauline Hanson, when she was elected in 1996, caused an enormous uproar and a reckoning in politics about how this could happen. She was expelled in 1998. Pauline Hanson has never been stronger in Australia than right now. She's entrenched in the Senate. She has brought colleagues with her. Her party is represented in the majority of states and territories in this country. And most of her ideas 
a part of the mainstream political discourse in this country, in, in both major parties. So I think if you think that racism was worse 100 years ago or 200 years ago, uh, and you think that we slowly inch forward, panels like this can be a bit of a, a false image as well. Like, it's true that this might not have happened 10 or 20 years ago, and there's so many things that have happened that are great. But to Rhonda's point about liberal multiculturalism, like, yeah, we're ticking some boxes here and there. But as far as the big structural stuff operates, there is no moral arc of the universe bending towards justice. That is the biggest lie that I think we've been told. Um, and I think if you're not cautious, you will forget that and you will see things slip backwards until you don't, you won't realize it until one day you wake up and you say, holy shit, stuff's really bad. Thanks, Osman. Yes, look, I, I just wrapped up a subject called Migrant Nation, and I'm, I'm forever, you know, what, what you're explaining there, you know, that, that, that kind of mainstream sense of our history that's taught in our schools and therefore translates, unless they which just critically study history, you know, that it makes me think about this notion of waves, you know, we get this first wave, second wave, third wave, generations of migrants, as if waves sometimes pull back, as if they don't peter out, as if they don't crash into another wave quite violently. You know, there's this, there's this ways that we need to reconsider a kind of notion of migrant cultural difference and its contribution to the building of the nation. Mm. And so to the schools that under right, in your, in your work, you know, um, coming of age in the war on terror, I was just saying, Fernanda, earlier, you know, one thing that I, that I noticed a few years ago is that uh, I was no longer able to vibe with my students thinking that they kind of lived in Howard era mm. Australia. And in fact, they didn't know about events like Tampa, um, Yeah, we're old now, man. It's, yeah, it's we, like, we, yeah, we are getting old. <laughs> we are getting old. But, you know, time changes. And, 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 and so I guess my question here is that, is, is you know, buttressing your book is, is a kind of consideration how the sting of racism has been felt intergenerationally. And this speaks also to your work, son. You've had a bit to say about the generational difference and experience of racism. So kind of to the contemporary and then perhaps, Hassan, to your kind of sense of, um, of how also that racism is felt intergenerationally. So the, the, the coming of age on the war on terror was based on a research project I did. I, I wanted to explore that generation who were born around 9-11 because my politicisation came around when I was in high school, um, so a completely different sort of context. Um, and I can sort of pinpoint my life between pre and post 9-11 um, that there was a very different sort of sensibility about what politics was. But then, you know, as I kept researching um, Islamophobia, I, I, I couldn't help but feel that there was this whole generation that were born around 9-11 who have only ever known a world at war on terror. And I really wanted to hear from them, both Muslim and non-Muslim, um, about what that meant, what it meant for their fears, what it meant for um, their trust relations in school, how did it bear down on the way that they expressed themselves in school, the way that they um, engaged in politics, interpreted what it means to be political. Um, and uh, I went and interviewed students at uh, four schools in um, Sydney um, across around Sydney. And um, it was really interesting for me because uh, so many of the Muslim students that I spoke to um, spoke about the way that they felt that they had to manage the way that they spoke in classrooms because they felt that things would be taken out of context, that they might be... This was around also the time where there was the whole moral panics around radicalizations and, um, you know, jihadi brides and, um, you know, that jihad was... That there were kids in school that were being radicalised and, and really the securitization and creation of Muslim community spaces as suspect communities. I found that there was a real difference between, um, you know, in, like the intersectional lens really made a difference. Obviously, it was gendered. There were very big differences between girls who wore hijab um, compared to, um, you know, the way that Muslim males experienced their political um, agency um, and their sense of safety. But I also felt that there was um, real class differences. So it was really interesting that the Muslim kids that I spoke to who were in schools in the Hills area, which is where I live, um, had more in common with their non-Muslim peers than they did with the Muslim kids out in um, Guildford and Greenacre. Um, and they had internalised a lot of the racism and stereotyping that, um, that had sort of constructed those suburbs as gritty and threat and, um, you know, ghetto and, and all of those sort of negative images. The, the, the thing that was very also very interesting for me was 
um, looking and linking it back to Osman, what you were saying, um, you know, we for, we kind of forget like this this narrative of racism in Australia. So often we hear around when the Christchurch terrorist attack happened, there was just this language of this is we are better than this. He's not one of us. He was an aberration. He was a deviant, and he was so very Australian. He was so very white Australian. He had been marinating in the war on terror politics and discourse. He was a young guy who had seen our country, um, you know, participate in the global war on terror, kill Muslims in the name of the global war on terror, and basically had been given given permission to do that, and had internalised this idea of you know Muslims as threat, as needing to be dealt with. And so, you know, for me, the, these are the things that I was trying to explore. How does all of that bear down on young people? Because we, we don't realise how those discourses shape how they feel about their ability to speak openly about issues that affect them, and especially in classroom contexts, mm. what that means for their own, you know, sense of safety. And, and Gassan, you, you've made some pretty astute observations based on... You know, things that you've heard in your research, you know, the migrant can sometimes say, ah, I would have, if, if, if someone was coming to our country, I, I probably may have treated them the same. But the next generation feels it differently. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I mean, this was a very specific uh, ethnographic case which made me think that uh, I was I was sitting in a in a lounge room interviewing this old uh, Lebanese couple, and they were telling me some pretty horrendous experiences they had of racism. They, they sort of like, yeah, sort of like the guy was telling me about how he used to to to, to bring some lunch to to his workplace in a in a in a box, and because and some workers would actually steal it and dump it in, in the garbage bin because they wanted to force him to actually tick the canteen, canteen form. And he couldn't read uh, English, so, so, so he would just tick, and sometimes he would end up with a packet of Marlboro. That was the time when you could buy a packet of Marlboro, sort of like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, so he was telling me this, this kind of story, and then he kind of like was saying, yeah, you know, but this is, you know, we are guests here, and this is uh, their country, and we probably would, 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 would do the same uh, if they saw this. He was, I thought, was quite uh, magnanimous, I suppose, or, or what have you. Anyway, in the middle of the, the interview and this story, sort of like his son came out and came into the lounge room. He said, bloody country, sort of like, sort of like, and said, what's going on? He said, just this policeman looked at me in a really sort of like, sort of like awful way. And I was waiting to hear a bit more, but that was it. <laughs> like he was upset because the policeman looked at him the wrong way, much more than his father was upset about <laughs> the whole experience of racism. And so, 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 that, so the experience of racism obviously has also to do with uh, your expectations, uh, so how much you feel you are entitled. Uh, sometimes one feels that the whole uh, sociology of racism really is a sociology of entitlement. Uh, the racists are entitled in a very specific way. And they try to not make others feel entitled. And uh, uh, sort of like, it, and people's experience of racism is also dependent on how they feel that they are entitled not to be subjected to racism. Mm. And, and that, that the mode of distribution of entitlement and different kind of entitlement is, is really uh, quite an important aspect of, of, of the subject. So if we can hover on this and perhaps extend on it. And within this entitlement is a sense then of, of, of fixing. Fixing. Trying to locate people in a very certain way. And through that, 
hierarchies and you explore in your critique of Australian multiculturalism, then that there are attempts to kind of situate ethnic culture, indigenous cultures in particular ways, and therefore how people should belong, entitled to say, you belong, you belong in this way to that culture, which kind of probes you and moves you to consider the right to oscillate. So could you share with us this notion of the right to oscillate? Yeah, well, I mean, so the right to oscillate is basically, uh, first of all, a reaction against, uh, as a, as a uh, Lebanese, uh, Australian, uh, you get a lot of this, are you Lebanese or are you Australian? Uh, and I've always never felt able or desiring to answer such questions because I generally don't uh, experience it as a one, as a kind of like either or 100%, either you are or you're not, or even 50-50. And so, so like a magically, I actually feel I can say, I'm 100% Lebanese, so piss off. And I'm 100 Australian, also piss off. Uh, <laughs> and I, I have no problem saying that I am, I am both. And, but at the same time, also, I feel that I want to maintain that right to oscillate. That is, uh, that I, if I wake up in the morning and I feel like having a 100% uh, Lebanese breakfast, I'm being cliche, but <laughs> uh, sort of like I want to have a manouche and nothing else. <laughs> okay, and uh, sort of like uh, followed by me. I mean, I, 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 can, <laughs> I can oscillate. I, I don't want to be a prisoner, but I mean, be, behind the joke is the fact that there are so many people who want to pin you down. And the people who want to pin you down are not just uh, white Australians. No. There's so many in the ethnic communities who will have plenty of definitions of what is the right way to be this and what is the right way to be that. So there is this element, but I think the most important thing is also the, the question of inheritance uh, in belonging, because uh, when you when you do this game of belonging, you really uh, try not to think about the complexity of our inheritance as Australians. And I don't mean uh, ethnic inheritance. For instance, we are all inheritors of stolen goods, uh, of the theft of indigenous land. We are, that's our inheritance. Uh, we are we have inherited stolen indigenous land. So how do we? How do we sort of like negotiate? I mean, such a complex thing. How can you negotiate receiving stolen good as a gift? Uh, that's just like an incredible thing when you think about it, the gift of the stolen good. Uh, uh, because should, you are uh, grateful, uh, and when you receive, whether it's stolen or not, you're grateful uh, because you benefited from it. But at the same time, you know, it's got an element that decays it, brings decay into it from, from the inside. And so how do you negotiate this is what makes the quality of your belonging, it seems to me. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to open it up to you, the audience. Oh, we'll go here first. Okay. Can racism be directed towards white people? Yeah, my uncle. Um, I'm happy to answer that one. Um, my answer is no, because racism relies on power and power imbalances. And so until white people have experienced generations of their lands and their children being stolen and enforceably enslaved and put into indentured servitude, and had their languages and their cultural practices criminalised, they cannot be racially mistreated. You can be mistreated and white, but that's not racism. Um, that's my answer. Like, until, until that happens, it's not going to happen, that power imbalance just doesn't exist. 
I think Amy's 100% right. What's interesting is that none of our... Sorry, I said I think Amy's 100% right, but what's interesting is that none of our official definitions or laws around race actually recognise that. And I think that's a real problem we've got. It's like you read things like the Racial Discrimination Act and Section 18C, those sorts of things. They define race in a purely apolitical term that is devoid of that power analysis. And it's a real problem because you're spot on. But if I said um, you're not, you know, you're a bad person because you're white, which is a weird thing to say, but doesn't reflect that power, that is racist. The equivalent legally and in so many organisations is someone saying you're bad because you're black, even though that context, context and history is so vastly different. It's a significant gap in terms of how we officially discuss this stuff. I think. I mean, I would I would add to that these distinctions between how we how we how we place label on race, colour, race. Religion, race, nation, race. There are different ways that race as a language, and therefore this term white, is kind of this historical construction of whiteness. Think about the mediated ways that whiteness has been both placed upon people and how people have responded to this constructed notion of whiteness. So being of a Greek background, at some point in Australia's past and at some point in the, in the kind of making of white settler colonialism in Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand, Greeks are white, but not white. White, but racially distinct from other whites. Their experience of racism and their f- relationship to whiteness is culturally specific. And so putting emphasis on that, I think, goes to kind of better getting to the heart of your question. But, mm. Hassan, do you want to answer? We have another yes, question. Yes, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think uh, sort of like one has to be sort of... I, I'm sure that there are some, some uh, white people who genuinely experience that they are copying it because they're white uh, as an experience. Like... Uh, uh, however, sort of like, I think uh, it's important that white people, after having monopolized uh, resources uh, in this country and monopolized power uh, and monopolized everything, maybe they can not monopolize racism as well. <laughs> sort of like it'd, be, it'd be a great idea. <laughs> we have another question over here. Um, my question is how we as people of color, how can we look after ourselves at a time that you live in a country that racism, internal racism, all of these are just part of your daily life? Yeah, I think um, it really depends on where you're located. I would never ask somebody who's from you know, a low socioeconomic background who's just trying to put food on the table and are working <laughs> several jobs to, you know, go and join a solid, you know, a, um, an activist group and, and start getting involved in anti-racism activism. And, um, you know, I think it really depends on the individual and what they have the capacity to, to do because what I feel the most liberating thing for me in, in this space has been um, solidarity with other groups, building collective solidarities, horizontal solidarities. So, in divesting from the idea that the state is going to rescue us, that the state is going to deliver us an anti-racist future. It's through relationships with other communities. And I, you know, as much as you can, you know, because I know not everyone has the capacity to do that. But personally for me, it was through building relationships with my Indigenous brothers and sisters, with other minority groups who are experiencing racism. And when you have those coalitions of support and solidarity, first it gives you a backbone to face things together. But it also makes you realise that the problem isn't on you mm. to fix as an individual, that you are not the problem, that the problem is why does white Australia always need a minority to pick on? Like, why does white Australia have an issue with racism? And so once you start to understand that the, that the issues can be faced together, um, I really do think that that is very liberating because otherwise you get paralysed thinking, what do I need to do to fix myself so this isn't going to happen to me? But when you realise that you can actually turn your back and say, this is your problem to deal with, not mine, there is something very liberating in in being able to do that. Thank Mm. you. We have one more question. Um, I wanted to ask a question about 
challenges for, as Gassan said, our anti-racist community. We've just had a decade of governments that were proud of their racism. Now we've got a government that says Indigenous people are our number one priority, yet state governments, Labor governments around the country are either imposing law and order in Queensland and WA or allowing fracking on Aboriginal land. The public out there, I think, feels like we've now got this progressive, anti-racist government in Canberra, but I don't know how you feel for anti-racist or pro-refugee activists. It's hard to get traction because the official narrative is that it's now all okay. Yeah, I mean, they, the, they did also just cut the funding to the Aboriginal Legal Service quite substantially as well. Um, so the list is pretty substantial. Too many white people are patting themselves on the back because they got rid of the former government. Um, they got rid of the former government on the back of the current government basically promising to change very little. Um, it's not really a victory. Uh, one of the saddest things I saw was, was Linda Burney say, we need the voice because that's what will help us solve these problems in Alice Springs. You're in the government. Like, you can do stuff. You can, you can defund police. You can, you, can, you can invest in just reinvestment. You can invest in education, housing, and health. You can do things. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that both major parties, to different extents, have such a unified position on issues of migration, asylum seekers, and Indigenous policy. It's a big, big, big stain on this country. Yeah. I would agree, and it kind of speaks to our entrenched notion of controlling a border, kind of Australia's specific relation to its border control has a long history. I'd like to wrap up by asking you all perhaps a loaded question, but one that has Gassan kind of touched on at the start. It's about writing. It obviously then touches to audience, it's about where you write, how you write, the modes by which you write, the feelings that you have when writing as a form of anti-racist practice. So can I ask you just to reflect perhaps, we'll start with Randa and we'll, we'll move down and then finish with you, Osman. Yeah, um, it, it informs all my writing, whether it's for children um, or young adults, um, whether it's an opinion piece or academic, it's it really fuels sort of the motivation as to why I write. And I love and enjoy that I can experiment with voice and with story, but still have the same sense of insurgency in my writing. At, uh, yes, I think, I think, you know, uh, as, a, as a lecturer, when you start lecturing at university, uh, you develop a capacity, hopefully, <laughs> to speak to a multiplicity of audiences in the lecture theater. Uh, because initially you might have fantasies of amazingly good students, and then you realize <laughs> that, that actually the students are of a multiplicity of uh, interest levels, etc. And so slowly you start developing a capacity of speaking, but allowing your speech to have a way in which it can be taken in different ways by the different audiences. And I think to me, uh, sort of like good writing also is that I, or what I uh, strive to, to, to achieve when I'm writing, uh, is, is this sort of like plurality of voices, because I, I, I don't like to write just theoretically, and I'm very theoretical, uh, but I want someone to, who is theoretical and philosophical to fully say, I'm reading something which I can engage with. But I don't want to do it at the expense of someone else who might not be interested and who is more interested in the political uh, or someone who's more interested in storytelling. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I, I feel uh, this is what I try, I've been trying to develop and I continue. I think it's an endless thing. Mm. Yourself, Amy? Um, writing and storytelling influences 
how we perceive our world, politics, what can and can't be achieved. And off the back of that question about, well, you know, are white people just giving up? Osman commented that it was very sad that Auntie Linda Burney made the comment that, you know, getting up the voice is something that will support addressing the issues they're seeing in Northern Territory. And I don't agree that that's sad. I think that the potential of the voice and why I'm encouraging everyone who will listen to me to vote yes in the upcoming referendum is we currently have barely any Indigenous people being heard in the government. There's Linda, there's Malandiri. To a lesser extent, we've got Lydia Thorpe, right? And they are working up against massive mechanisms and layers of generational racism and harm and trauma that is deeply complex. And having a group, a body, where we can gather and collate all of the reports and all of the work that's being done and the actual reasons behind the harm that we're seeing in those communities, rather than everyone turning around and saying, tough on crime, which is just code for attack the browns or the blacks, but actually going, no, we need to address housing, we need to address mental health, we need to address these things. Having a space where you can bring that together, which is part of what the voice would function, so then they can formally do that advice, will support the work of Linda Burney. To say that you're in government, you can do it? No, she can't. They're two people in a massive room of white men primarily who, you know, their power is limited even when they're in government. And so that's what the hope that the voice will achieve. It might not, but worst case scenario, we have to come up with some other mechanisms. But storytelling, whether we're telling ourselves that, well, we can't do anything, or we're telling ourselves that, well, we've done really well, or, you know, Labor, they're the next Greens. No, they're not. But also Labor have gotten away from their roots. So the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that we connect and grow our communities with through our writing, through our lecturing, through, you know, the media work that you do, Osman, is so valuable in anti-racism work. Even the fact that we're all using the term anti-racism, when a year or two ago, everyone would have just said, I'm not racist. Not being racist is not the same as being anti-racist. And I think that is the power of our storytelling and our writing, whether it's being on a panel like this or writing for the, you know, the, the papers or in the magazines or writing our books and then hoping that people will sit down and give it the hours that you need. You know, you can't read on double speed like you can watch on double speed on TikTok, right? <laughs> um, and so I think it's incredibly powerful um, and there's a lot of potential there. If you want to have a, a brief comment Yeah, yeah, no, I don't have the time writing. to litigate the extent yeah. of what Amy said, but I think my point was more that the absence of a voice is not an excuse for the federal government to not do things that years and years and years of reports and activism has been demanding that they do. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about, we can talk more about that later. In terms of the question that you asked, um, and Donis, on this theory, on this question of why we write like Rhonda, it's like, the only reason I write is these things. I don't, I enjoy writing about TV and music and film, it's fun, but it's not the thing that motivates me the most to do it. But um, the, the question who asked the question before about how difficult it is uh, to be a person of colour, I feel that all the time. Like, I think I am in awe of all of these people on this panel because the one thing that they, one of the things that they've done that I haven't done, not the one thing, there are many things I haven't done, uh, is they've written a book. They've done it. I haven't been able to do it. Um, my long-suffering publisher, Meredith, is here and she sees me every year um, and is hoping that one day I'll have something to sign. Um, <laughs> but one of, one of the challenges I find around it is it's really difficult to live through what people like us live through and then go home and say, I'm going to spend time writing to help other people understand these issues or to persuade people uh, to, to kind of contribute to the country moving in a particular direction. It's a big demand mm. on us. And I'm not really anywhere near the worst off. You know, I'm a middle-class model migrant in so many ways participating in a mainstream media industry and I still find it very exhausting mm. and draining. Um, and so I, I'm deeply impressed on those who can and have contributed so importantly on these questions, you know, Amy, Gassan and, and Rhonda. Um, but yeah, it is, it is what I, the only thing that motivates me to write is mm. this question of race and how it operates in this country. Thank you. To conclude and, and kind of in this, in this kind of language of, well, you just, just highlighted Osman, that the labour, the work, the time, the many hours that's required to do certain forms of writing, and I would say particularly anti-racism writing. So keep that in your head for a moment. Um, 
Assange's new republication, The Racial Politics of Australian Multiculturalism. It's a book that includes two dense but highly influential and very, very useful critiques of Australian multiculturalism as well as its nationalism. To conclude, take your time and please thank our guests this evening what has been a great panel. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.